My name is Norbert. I'm pastor of Point of Grace Church. I'd like to welcome you. A special shout out also to those who are worshiping with us online. If you see unfamiliar face around you or beside you, it's time to say hi, give it a smile, maybe shake hands. That means either you are the guest or there are guests around you. This is the first time I see people on the very top. <laughs> All right. I grew up reading newspapers. Um, when I was growing up, it's not the digital newspapers, the real printed newspapers. It's practically everywhere I go. It's inexpensive and very educational. And truth be told, I grew up poor and it's only in high school when we had a television. And while our neighbors are enjoying their huge screen colored TV, we were stuck in the 14 inch black and white TV with antenna. Anyone had that black and white antenna? So most of my exposure to the world or to what's happening around the world is what I read from newspapers. So whenever I have a chance, I would sit down and take my time. My favorite part was Maximo Sullivan's editorial section from the Philippine Star. Um, it was from him that I learned the first derogatory word, son of a gun. It's son of a gun, but he would spell it like son of a gun, son of a gun. Anyway, next to his section was the editorial cartoon, which means all it takes is a bit of imagination and a good sense of humor to make sense of the cartoon. Now the book of Revelation is sort of a, an editorial commentary and an editorial cartoon together. So when you read the book of Revelation, it's both a serious critique of the times and a satire to the world's dominant power. When we read the book of Revelation, we read it as a commentary. We read it with the imagination of an editorial cartoon. And at the very end, we have to ask, what's the point? Because there are so many weird things that you can read from the book of Revelation. And so at the very end, you will have to ask the point. What's the point? When you ask that, it will lead us to a better and more realistic understanding of the book. Anyone read the book of Revelation? Cool. It's kind of scary. It's kind of weird. But that's how you, you read it. Now, I must warn you, the chapters that we are about to check today will reflect an editorial spirit and a good bit of imagination because it will mention a lot of weird things that you might probably have read or hear the first time. It will mention a gigantic cosmic figure. My daughter knows about giants. She would say, Papa, give me much food because I want to be tall and I would like to be a giant. She would say giant instead of a giant. So cosmic giants, and there will be voice that sounds like thunders. There will be uh, a guy who will be asked to, to eat scroll for dessert, and there will be olive trees that can talk, and if that wasn't weird enough, there will be a beast coming from the abyss who will kill the lampstands at the very end. But, but the idea here is to ask the question, what's the point? 
If you get these weird images from the book of Revelation, you have to ask, what's the point? Chapters 10 and 11 of the book of Revelation, um, let's not get confused about this. This is kind of weird. But if this is your first time to read the book of Revelation, let me do a quick intro and recap of what's going on here. We've started the series on the book of Revelation uh, five weeks ago, and this is the sixth installment. The book of Revelation is the last book that was written in the Bible. When the Roman Caesars demanded to be worshipped, the church refused. So as a result, the church was persecuted. So God gave John visions, and John wrote down in a book resulted to the book of Revelation. But what's in the book? What's in this book? Now, again, this is a satire to the ancient city of Rome, <clears throat> excuse me, built on seven, seven hills. And so John also wrote to the seven churches, chapters 2 and 3, encouraging the churches, although there are so many churches at that time, but he wrote particularly the seven churches in Asia Minor, as a response to the ancient city of Rome built on seven hills. That's chapters two and three. And then chapters four and five is a vision of John. He went to heaven and saw the throne of God. He saw 24 elders, and this is of four living creatures worshiping God. And then a lamb that was slain, which is Jesus Christ, in chapters 6 and 7, took the scroll and opened the seals. It has seven seals. And every time he opens the seals, something comes out. Something terrible comes out. That's chapters 6 and 7. And with increasing intensity, when he is about to open the sixth, seventh seal, seven trumpets came out. And every time a trumpet is blown, there are pestilence and famine and wars and earthquakes, and so on and so forth. Last week, we talked about chapters 8 and 9. And at the very end of chapter 9, after all the, the horrible tragedies that the people have experienced, it says the people did not repent. The people did not recognize God as who he is. Now we're in chapters 10 and 11. So chapters 10 and 11 is sort of an aftermath of the category Hurricane Ian. Now, imagine you go out the following day after the hurricane and you're looking at your neighbors, flooded communities, the houses are gone, the livelihoods are destroyed, there's no power, there's no food, and everywhere you look is plain destruction. And then thinking that this has nothing to do with God, that somehow God is not involved in all of these. Now, to believe that this is just Random events that happen every year because we simply live in Florida is a mistake. As if hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes have nothing to do with God. As if these things were originally part of God's plan and design for the world. This is a mistake. You see, the Bible opened with saying that God created first day, second day, third day, up to the sixth day. And on the sixth day, God said it was very good which means there's no projection of earthquakes and volcanic eruptions and tornadoes and famine and sickness because it was very good. All these things happened because of the byproduct of what Adam and Eve did in Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, which means what's happening right now, 
the disasters that we are experiencing are not norm at all. These are not part of God's design for the earth and his creation. This happened because of the failure of humankind. This happened because we messed up. It will be an equal mistake to ignore the warnings of God before we begin to pay attention. What I'm saying is that all that we are experiencing, including the phenomenal, the natural phenomenon, the disasters, the pestilence, the famine, and all these things are part of what God do to warn us of the impending judgment. These are not normal. Sooner, when the last trumpet is blown, God will restore things back to the original. Now, there's this great Christian philosopher by the name of C.S. Lewis who said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It will be a mistake if the world will not listen that God is giving us warning. Once Adam and Eve went out of reservation, we have been conditioned to live as if God does not exist and rules does not exist. It is until now we're trying to live our lives outside God's rules, again, as if he doesn't exist. The reason why we have recent protests on the street, the reason, in fact, I think, even the Supreme Court cannot unanimously agree on the decision on Roe v. Wade, because they are as confused as we are on whether the real issue is between life or an individual's choice. The reason why we have issues about racial integrity and gender identity is because of rules. The reason why we have traffic lights and yellow lanes is because of rules. The more we try to live outside God's rules, the more he sends warnings. All these things that are happening around us are but warnings from God. This is how we read the book of Revelation, like an editorial commentary with the imagination of an editorial cartoon. Let's read verses 1 to 4 of chapter 10. It says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his foot right on the sea, his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. I have not watched any movie that sounds like this one or read any cartoon comics that sounds like this one. The seven thunders is the content or are the content of the little scroll. But we want to know what's, what's inside the little scroll. What does the seven thunders mean? Well, the voice said seal up, so that means we cannot. It's a secret. Now Moses said in Deuteronomy 29, he said the secret things belong to our Lord and God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the word of this law. Everything that God wants us to do, he has already revealed. But there are some things that are kept secret, and those secrets are for him. It's not for us. But between you and I, 
I think we are more interested in secrets. Yes? We'd love to, to know the secrets. We are curious to know the secret. And we will do any means possible to know the secrets of God. Even if it drives us to seek the secret things by any means possible, even those means that God describes as abomination. It's called sorcery. The technical term for that is divination. What is divination? It's when we use demonic spiritual powers to know the secret rather than wait on God to tell us the secret. And regardless if it's white magic or black magic or purple magic, whatever kind of magic, it's magic. The Bible prohibits us to use magic to know secrets. It's called divination. Divination is our desire to know the future by reading the stars. It's called horoscope. It's also called astrology. Now, I'm not sure if it's your favorite, but others would prefer communicating with spirits via crystal ball and tarot cards or Ouija boards. Back in the Philippines, my neighbors, because we're poor, we use the spirit of Walis Ting Ting. <laughs> Can't even understand that. But that's the idea. It's, it's because we are curious to know the secrets of the future. How do people get involved in occultism? Occultism provides an attraction to the access of secret knowledge. What makes a cult? Any group that offers an exclusive access to secret knowledge is one. That's one characteristic of a cult. Secret knowledge must be kept secret. See, the book of Revelation is not secret knowledge. The book of Revelation is not meant to be read as a puzzle book. The book of Revelation must be read like a white flag offering hope for the persecuted saints in the time of John. So this little scroll containing seven thunders was sealed up for now. We cannot know it. It's a secret. And then it says, verse 5, then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. We know who that is. That's God. Who created heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. What this means is that the content of the little scroll, the seven thunders, the secret to that is kept secret because it will give way to a more important mystery of God that is about to be revealed. The mystery of God is more important than the secrets. The angel swore to God that there will be no more delay. But for John, he was asked to eat the scroll like dessert. He was asked to literally eat the scroll. Now, again, this is figurative. This is a vision. So you cannot take this literally. But you have to ask the point. But you have to ask, what's the point? What's the point of eating the scroll and keeping the secrets for now? In verse 11, it says, And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. It's a way of saying that John must ingest the scroll, make it part of himself, so that the message in him will be indistinguishable from one another. 
That means his life will become prophecy in itself. He will have to prophesy. But again, it's kept secret for now. Let's go to the mystery. What is this mystery of God? Now here's the story. There is this ancient, now this is not secret anymore. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm preaching on this. There's this ancient story about deception and conflict. Now, we go way back to the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent. They broke the rule. They ate of the fruit. So God pronounced a curse. But he did not pronounce a curse on the man, the woman. He only pronounced a curse on the serpent. And he permanently put a wedge of conflict between the woman and the serpent, between their seed and his seed. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That was the pronouncement. There will be an ongoing conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, nobody knew what it meant. And for hundreds of years, no one paid attention to what it meant. Until, until, Canaan came out. So Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden. The population grew. And according to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the evil intent of man's heart grew continually so that God decided to wipe out all the population of the world. And so he sent flood, Noah. After Noah, he went out of the ark. He blessed Noah. But there you see Noah cursed his grandson Canaan. So when God cursed the serpent, all we have to do is to watch out where God will say, or in the Bible would say, another curse, which means anyone God curses or anyone that is cursed is the seed of the serpent. And in the time of Noah, God, Noah cursed Canaan. This is how you read the book of Joshua and what it meant for the people of Israel to conquer the land of Canaan. Why? Because it somehow resembles the Canaanites to be the seed of the serpent. That's why there's an ongoing conflict in here. But before that, Genesis chapter 12, God blessed Abraham. But then God said also, I will bless you, I will make your name great, but anyone who curses you, I will curse. Anyone who bless you, I will bless. What that means is that anyone who becomes an enemy of Abraham resembles the seed of the serpent. Anyone who bless Abraham resembles the seed of the woman. So we know if we follow along the storyline, the curse is brought to the serpent's offspring. Now, there's another story about the people of Israel. So Abraham's descendant grew and multiplied, and we saw them in the, in the book of Exodus in Egypt. In Egypt, they became fat, happy, and multiplying. And then suddenly, the serpent appears. I see, it's here. The serpent appears in the form of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, wearing the headdress of a serpent, like coming out from the abyss, continuing the ancient feud, Pharaoh decided to kill all the Hebrew boys by throwing them in the Nile River. But because of the mercies of God, Israel, as God's firstborn son, escaped Egypt 
at the expense of Pharaoh's firstborn son, his successor. Centuries later, you find Israel fighting a different enemy. Now it's not Egypt. Now it's the Philistines. Now this nation, just like Egypt, wanted to enslave the seed of the woman, the descendants of Abraham. And they are representative, represented by a giant warrior named Goliath. The Bible said that he wears a bronze helmet, a bronze coat mail like a vest, a bronze leg armor, and he challenges Israel by saying, Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Now, make no mistake about it. We already know that Israel is God's firstborn son. Therefore, he cannot be a slave of another God. Which means Goliath is trouble. Now, what's, what's interesting here is that the word for serpent in Hebrew is nehoshtan. The bronze, the Hebrew word for bronze in Hebrew is nehusha. So there's a play of words in here. And if you're an ancient reader, you know that this Goliath who wears bronze all over his body with the scales of bronze sounds like the son of the serpent. He that challenges the people of God who wants to subjugate the seed of the woman. But then David appears. David was young. He's too young to participate in war, but he volunteered to fight Goliath. He refused to wear the same armor. Instead, he slew the giant with the slingshot. And then he chopped off his head. Question is, could this be the fulfillment of what God said in Genesis chapter 3? He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. But then the story continues. It's an ongoing mystery. But this gives us an idea of how this will end. Now, this is an ongoing conflict that continued for generations and generations. But the identity of this woman's seed and the bruising of the serpent's head remained a mystery. Not until we find the familiar story in the same garden, not the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you find Jesus Christ praying. This was his last temptation. You already know in the wilderness, he was tempted three times. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying. You see, in the Garden of Eden, Adam failed. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus succeeded. And what was the temptation? Jesus was being tempted to live outside of God's rule, just like Adam. The temptation for him was to refuse the cup that brings death. Just think about this. The reason why a week before his friend Lazarus died, and when he went there, went to the tomb, the Bible said he wept. You remember that? The reason why he wept in front of Lazarus' tomb was not because he was sad about the death of Lazarus. He wept because he was looking death in the face, and he foresaw his own death. He did not weep because Lazarus died. In fact, he could easily bring him back to life. He did not weep because of his sisters who were crying. Again, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection of the life. He can easily bring Lazarus back. He wept because he saw death in the face. He wept because death 
was for the longest time reigning over God's creation. See, when God pronounced the creation on the sixth day, it was very good. The scent of death, the stench of death, the eerie silence inside the tomb of Lazarus is the face of the reverse of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Everything that God said it was good, it's reversed in the face of Lazarus because Lazarus lie dead. You see, in Genesis chapter 2, God said, he made man in the, God, in the image of God. Here's Lazarus lying in the tomb, a man after God's own image, dead. It's not very good. Jesus wept. He was angry. He was furious. He did not sob. He did not cry. He wept. He wept for this reason. So on the Passover night, Jesus literally took the cup and drank from it. What is this mystery all about? Is this, is this the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, the mystery of God? The mystery of God is about the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. So the question is how and when? When is this going to happen? Apostle Paul gave us a clue. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, he said, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. So by doing this, it's not secret anymore. Which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This was the mystery. The mystery where the angels swore that there will be no delay is the fulfillment of this mystery. It's already been fulfilled by the time John was writing this. But the world did not understand fully what this meant. Here's the mystery. The woman's womb, the Roman cross, and the empty tomb form the mystery of God. No one would have thought that for God to defeat the serpent, the death of the seed of the woman was necessary. No one would have thought that to destroy that itself, the life of the seed of the woman was to be forfeit. That is the mystery. Caiaphas did not understand, though, so he planned the assassination of Jesus. Pilate didn't understand. That's why he said, yes, do it. Execute him. The people did not understand, so that's why they said, crucify him. Even Satan did not understand. That's why there was a portion in, in two weeks before this that Jesus told his disciples, I will die on the third day, I will rise again. And Peter opposed Jesus. And this is what Jesus said to Peter. Get thee behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, this is a mystery that no one thought would happen. The death of the very Son of God in order to defeat death itself. All along, the only way we know how to defeat death is by force, by sword. But how, you do, how do you kill death? This is the mystery. Now, before the seventh trumpet was blown, John saw another vision. He was given a, a measuring rod to measure the temple and count those who worship in the temple. And again, this is a vision. This is, you, you cannot take this literally. Because at this point in time, 
the temple no longer existed. It was burned by the Romans 70 AD. It was John's revelation was written about 90 AD. So this must be a figure for something else. Listen to Revelation 11, 1 to 3. It says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, cloth in sackcloth. Now, this is an amazing text that a lot of people get confused with the numbers. Again, do not get confused with the numbers. The numbers are not meant to be literal. They are symbolic for something. But that's not as important as what he is saying. Rise and measure the temple and count those who worship. See, way before, in the time of exile, that was 586 BC, prophet Ezekiel, another prophet, had the same vision. He was also asked to measure the temple. And the idea behind the measuring of the temple is God's assurance that he will come back after exile. He will come back and return to the land of Israel. What he's saying is that I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to come back and bring you back here on the land, although you are now in exile. That is the meaning of the measuring of the temple. So that means for John, it's the same. Although the temple was destroyed already by the Romans, God simply is saying to John, I will come back. I will return and dwell with man again. How? When? Those are our questions. But John did not answer that. See, the heart of the promised land is Jerusalem. The heart of Jerusalem is the temple. At the heart of the temple is the most holy place. And inside the most holy place lies the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant is the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. In the first few lines of the Decalogue, it says, You shall worship the Lord your God only. You shall have no other gods before Him. What it says is who God is. God is holy. And before it ends, the fourth commandment says, You shall honor the Sabbath day. Sabbath day is how you worship God. Sabbath day tells us that God is the creator of all things, both in heaven and on earth. Sabbath day. Sabbath day is the culmination of everything that will happen in history of the world. Sabbath day. What's interesting here is that when the voice tells John to measure the temple, it's an assurance of God's return, not only to earth and to heaven, but to all to God's creation. And then there was this vision about the two witnesses who looked like olive trees and two lampstands. Now, this is interesting. Now, what we can say is that in the Old Testament, another prophet by the name of Zechariah also had the same vision. In Zechariah chapter 4, he saw two olive trees, and it's between the lampstand. The lampstand is the menorah. The lampstand or the menorah is inside the temple. Now, this is a dense book and text, but the idea is that the two olive trees in the vision of Zechariah represent the king and the high priest. Now, if, if, you don't, if you don't get it, and if it doesn't make sense, just think that the two witnesses in the book of John in Revelation 11 represent the church. Why would they say that? 
because they are called lampstands. In chapters 2 and 3, the churches are called lampstands. So these two witnesses are not literal two individual people. They are the church, lampstands. So the Bible said that the nations were allowed to trample the courts, which means the nations are allowed to persecute the church. And this is happening right now. We are, get, we are persecuted. But the church, according to this text, will have the power of Elijah and Moses, the power to shut the sky and pronounce a drought, or to do pestilence like when Moses turned the water into blood. It's kind of boring for now, but it, it's a, again, it's a dense text. Look at verse 7. 11, 7, it says, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now this becomes interesting. What this means is that the church is allowed to be killed. The church will be vulnerable. Now I'm not sure about what you think of the church and what you think of God's power. But every time we are in trouble, we always assume that God will come to the rescue, right? If there's a blackout, what do you do? You sing. You pretend as if God is with you, right? When you're afraid, what do you do? You sing. And you invoke God's name because you're assuming that God will come to rescue. What this text is saying is that when their testimony is over, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. The church will be vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. And it says in verse 8, And their dead bodies will lie in the street on the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. It, it's not in Israel. It's everywhere where the church is. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb, which means they will be a spectacle. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, like Christmas, because these two prophets have been tormented to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet. And a great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard the loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. It's a great story, but in case you're wondering, this is the summary of all church history. From the time Jesus went up to heaven to the time of his return, the church, like the two witnesses, will prophesy. They will prophesy and they will give witness accompanied by signs. The signs will be drought, the plagues, the pestilence, the famine, the sickness, you name it. That is the message of the church. See, the more we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the more God sends his warnings. And what are those warnings? Plagues, pestilence, drought, earthquakes, hurricanes. I warn you, the more you pray, his kingdom come, his will be done, warnings come. It's not Happy New Year and Merry Christmas. 
No, that's not, that, that's not how it works. What this is saying is that after, after this, the beast will come, will kill them, but they will be resurrected after three and a half days. What's interesting here is the last scene. The last scene about the invitation to come up is like saying, you have accomplished your task and you will be vindicated while your enemies watch. Now, the seventh trumpet finally sounded. So let's recap a bit. So there's this scroll with seven seals and on the last seal, there were seven trumpets, an announcement of God's wrath. And before the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet, there was this church witnessing to the world and they were killed, but they were vindicated as well. And God called them up to heaven. What, this is, what is this image telling us? Now, verse 15 tells us that the seven angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever. Now, what's the point? This is like looking at the cartoon and making sense of what this means. What, what's the point here? The point is in verse 15, where it says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever. But that means that his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It means God has fully conquered death. That's what it means. So there's a difference between D-Day and V-Day to those of you who knew about the Second World War. The D-Day, sorry, the V-Day is V for victory or V-E-Day or victory in Europe. The D-Day stands for disembarkation. Disembarkation is when the Allied forces landed on the shores of Normandy in France, June 6, 1944. A lot of us are not yet born at that time. For almost a year, on April 30, 1945, Adolf Hitler committed suicide. Seven days after that, all the German forces signed its official surrender. That's called the V-Day or the Victory Day. It took them almost one year to do this. The disembarkation is 1944. The V-Day is 1945. Almost one year. They are in Europe and they're fighting the Germans. But only in, in June, in April, sorry, in May 1945, that the German force surrendered. What this means is that the birth of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection after three days is the D-Day, the disembarkation. But the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the resurrection of the church, is the V-Day. So that means... From the time that Jesus ascended to heaven to the time that he will come down, this is the time that we fight the enemy. This is the time when the Allied forces are fighting the Germans. It's an undetermined amount of time. I cannot tell you the date of his return. But on his return, the church will be resurrected from the dead. Would you say amen to that? It doesn't sound exciting. What's more exciting is Jollibee later. Now, when the voices from heaven finally said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
What he's saying is that we can finally stop praying our Father and we can start singing, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken great power and begun to reign. And then worship will erupt in the throne of heaven. The saints will finally be vindicated. That's chapter 6 and 7. Justice will be served on God's good creation. And all of God's creation that was ruined will be restored. The mystery of the Garden of Eden will be fully revealed. The presence of God will return. And God and man will dwell together. This is the point of the last verse in chapter 11 verse 19. It says, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple and there were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. What's the point of the vision where John saw the temple and the ark of the covenant? Now at this point again, the temple is already destroyed. The ark of the covenant is gone missing. But John saw it in a vision in heaven. The first time the Bible mentioned the combination of thunder, lightning, rumbling, spills of thunder, and earthquake was in Exodus chapter 19. What is Exodus 19? Exodus 19 was when God met Israel for the first time. Israel was on the foot of the mountain. God is going to descend on top of the mountain. And the top of the mountain was covered with a huge, thick cloud. It was like a hurricane forming on top of the mountain. And there were thunders, peals of thunder, lightning, earthquakes, and a loud trumpet blast. God called Moses to come up, just like how the voice called the church to come up. This will become the last scene. But what's the point? What's the point of the temple in the ark? The presence of the temple in heaven and the ark signifies the rule of God. The Ark of the Covenant is the visible throne of God. If there's a throne, it means God is reigning. Now, right now, it's hard to imagine that God is reigning. It's sometimes when you have a problem and you're praying, it's hard to imagine that God rules, that God is in charge. When you are sick and you're praying, it's sometimes hard to imagine that God rules and He's in charge. When your family is back home and you're here and you feel so terribly sad, it's hard to imagine that God is in charge and He rules. When there are so many things that are beyond our control, it's hard to imagine that God reigns in His control. But the vision of the Ark of the Covenant is the signification that God rules, not just in heaven, but also on earth. That's why we pray, His kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. At the very last trumpet, we will all rise and we will meet with God. Listen to Apostle Paul. He describes this last mysterious scene that will happen on the last trumpet. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50. He said, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Sleep is dead. We shall all be changed. What he's saying is that we will not all die. But in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, 
this is the seventh trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. We're waiting for the last trumpet. We shall all be changed. You see, Jesus is the embodiment of this mystery. He was born and then he died. But on the cross, he crushed the serpent's head. And though he lies dead on the tomb, but on the third day, he rose to life again. That is victory. See, the cross is victory. It's not defeat. Though we are persecuted here on earth, it's not defeat. It's victory. Because as Christ died, He lives. As we die, we will also live again. Pity for those people who have no hope of the future. There are religious worldview that says that life is only here on earth that after death is no more that's sad after all the riches that you have accumulated it's going to go to waste after all the information that you learn it's going to go to waste but the bible gives us hope that death is not the end of it death is not the end of it we will be resurrected on the last day before the seventh trumpet. See, here's the song. A song goes like this. It says, The tomb where soldiers watched in vain was borrowed for three days. His body there would not remain. Our God was robbed, has robbed the grave. Because your name, Jesus, means victory. Therefore, all praise will rise to Christ our King. Would you say amen to that? When you say victory, you're thinking not just of the cross, you're also thinking of the resurrection. And when you sing victory, you're not just thinking of Jesus, you're also thinking of yourself. You see, one day, it may be soon, maybe not, but we will all die. Or we will not. Nobody knows. But on the last day, before the last trumpet, we will all be changed. We will be resurrected from the dead. No more sickness. No more pain. No more hunger. No more deaths. No more sadness. No more missing loved ones. No more hardships. I don't have to wake up every morning to go to work. No more of those things because God will finally wipe out tears in our eyes. What a lovely day. Let's sing this song.